0: Would you like to use your agency as a vehicle to spin out technology companies. Would you like to use your agency as a vehicle to make a bunch of friends who are billionaires? If you wanna hear a story of how that works on this episode of Agency Exits, I have interviewed interview, David UK, and you're gonna hear exactly how he did that. So let's jump right in. Hi, Raj here with another episode of Agency Exits. I'm here with David UK, who joins us from a private island on a cabin, his sl- slice of heaven. David is a 30-year media veteran and the founder and CEO of several digital media companies, including Wired Carbon, Digital Daycamp, Pros and Contents, Artist HQ, Liquid Story. And he's also the former board member of IAB Canada and co-wrote the rules around digital video. David founded Q digital media and sold it to ID media in 2020. So a host of experience here. So David, let me kick off by asking the big question. You've grown multiple businesses in the agency and in the digital space, and most people have a challenge running just one. So what's your approach to that? What's made you successful in doing so many different things?
1: Yeah, started Q Digital back in I guess it was 2010. Actually, a little earlier, 2000. And, yeah, to, around 2010, and and that was my primary focus at the time. I had done a number of startups for other people, so I kind of bro- you know broke my bread working for other media leaders and learned my way over you know, a span of 20 years, really, about 15. I've been independent for about 15 years now, 14 years. And what I did find, which was interesting, um, is that, you know, I wouldn't say I stumbled. I think you make your own luck. I think that you create your own opportunities, whether it be a company or a job or whatever you're looking for. Um, So what I'm doing when I started Q... Within several years, I realized that there was a technology service that I needed and there wasn't anyone really providing it in the Canadian marketplace. You know, my company, we were selling inventory in the Canadian marketplace, targeting Canadian eyeballs for Canadian advertisers, but we were selling NBA, NFL, CNN, Vox, etc., etc., all the big boys, but we are an independent. And, And I needed to bring some of the technology in-house. So I went, oh, here's an opportunity, actually. I said, not only can I bring this in-house, but I could actually start a company which would be symbiotic to my existing company. And in fact, there was a fellow working for me who had helped me bring a number of technology in-house. And I knew that I'd probably lose them at some point. So I I said, hey, would you be interested in partnering with me to start this new company? I know you're going to leave me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so why don't you partner with me and then it, you you can kind of leave me but i'm empowering and he didn't have the acumen business acumen that i had so that was an advantage i've also more he was more of an ops person i was more of a salesperson i had a very high level technology awareness but not enough to do the role that i needed him to do so we got you know, this is Wired Carbon that we started about nine years ago. And and we got the opportunity to first provide outsourced ad operations, which was a, a missing link in the Canadian marketplace. But in addition to that, we saw that there would be a runway towards getting the rights to sell the technology for, at the time, either Google or AOL. I'm very glad we chose Google. <laughs> AOL
0: <laughs> became the dodo bird in this area. Dodge that uh, bullet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and so we started that, and you know now, today, it's a successful company. We were fortunate that we started it as a virtual company, so mm-hmm. we introduced the whole concept of virtual nine years ago within the industry. Um, at, we've had less than 5% attrition in our, both our clients and our staff, which is unheard of in this category. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'm like, okay, that model works. I've got somebody who can run the business. I can help drive the revenue symbiotically. Most of the revenue, our revenue out of that company is actually in the U S we service 90% of our clients are in the U S we have obviously a handful of competitors in the U S as well, but we do, we're a bit unique in many ways. Mm -hmm. And then I went, all right, I've got other, are there any, is there anything else that's symbiotic? So people were, are always, I think when you're, you know, deemed to be a somewhat successful entrepreneur opportunity often comes knocking at your door and i think it's important to decide and choose the opportunity that is the least taxing and the most beneficial by combining initiatives between the opportunity and your existing company and or companies i you know the companies that i have now existing are very symbiotic were there one or two others that along the way I tried and went. You know what? It's not working. I, you know, pull the plug. Get it. Get out of it. So, anyways, so that,
0: hopefully that answers the question. Yeah. So, so, so it's, I find it really interesting that you found an opportunity, and then you found, for lack of a better word, the jockey for this opportunity. I mean, you brought this opportunity together, and then you found the right person, and you didn't have to do everything yourself, right? Be that superhero no. entrepreneur. All you had to do is connect. The people with the opportunity, with the resources, and there, presto, you've created another asset from nothing other than recognizing a market opportunity and identifying a person, and that becomes an opportunity for you as a way to grow. So I think that's a great model.
1: Yeah, it is. It, 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 you know, I went to a, a good friend of mine does uh, huh, M&A. And he invited me down to this conference, a uh, three-day conference at Harvard. It was a lot of fun. I can say, I went to Harvard. It was, And it was, <laughs> the first day was the opening of Harvard. So it was like all the balloons were out. They were doing tours. Right. I, I felt like it was like my first day at university. But it was a three-day deep session with 50 CEOs, smallest companies. And I'm going to admit that I was the smallest company there because, you know, average size of companies were 50 to $250 million each. And... I learned there was, a, there was one case study. They did a lot of case studies and then we did some workshops and, and a, a lot of learnings around M&A, both how to prepare for it and deal with it. And then what do you do afterwards? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of CEOs out there who start a company and it could be their own unicorn, so to speak, whether mm-hmm. they exited a million or a hundred million. And they don't repeat that again. And I think it comes down to, you know, what you're talking about is, is there a formula that we can look at? And, and so there, during this Harvard M&A course that I took over three days, there was one case study and it talked about a couple of companies. One company in particular that I thought was interesting was they were in the auto parts area, but then they bought like-minded companies similar in nature that serviced each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so rather than buy from a supplier, become your own supplier. Right, so vertical
0: integration, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There was
1: a very funny other one that was talking about, it was like one of the first companies that did pump bottles for dispensing soap. and But they realized that their go-to-market strategy would be quickly taken over by a J&J or something like Johnson Johnson. So what they did was they wanted a year's runtime. So they went and bought basically all the dispensing top Supply. <laughs> <laughs> what Did a defense out fantastic. of the market.
0: Right. Yeah, this is, yeah, it's a really great story. anyway. It, so, so you learned a lot about MA and you thought about the opportunity in that way. And that let you leverage your, your brain and your experience on that. Because I think that's a pattern that I'm seeing amongst the really successful agency owners who have managed to leverage themselves into technology businesses, into other asset classes. So that that's really interesting. So how do you think about I've got my cash flowing business right now, and I'm going to be investing in something else, right? Because you're always kind of trading off current cash versus investing in another opportunity. How do you think about that when, you're, when you did something like Wired Carbon, where obviously you're taking an employee who's a productive employee, you, you know you're going to lose him, but that might be in two years, but he's making money for you now. How do you think about allocating in, uh, that investment versus kind of what you want to take home today?
1: Yeah, it, it you know, in hindsight, I'm gonna say I wish I'd taken more money off the table. Uh for multiple companies and multiple opportunities. I I think it's important it's like going to Las Vegas and, and gambling with the house money versus your own money. So right. I, I think that's that is one thing. I've never as an entrepreneur, there's so many I, I was around I you know, I was working in New York in two thousand when it was the dot com boom, and then the dot com crash. And I saw, I saw the climb and the fall. And I always questioned the companies that had no serious road to revenue. It was a lot of smoke and mirrors. They were, you know, they were uh, trying to get investors, but there was really no road to serious revenue. And those are the ones that got crushed the fastest. I've been, I've been what I a bootstrap entrepreneur. I've never raised a dime in my life. That's, but that's actually a a bit of of a disservice to myself only because I I wish that I had, and I wish I had that experience because now I'm like, you know what? I'd rather be playing with someone else's money than my own. And with the right team in place, I I think you want to reward your team properly. I'm being, a, you know, I think revenue Driving comes top down. So Mm -hmm. if you're a CEO that leads by driving revenue, it's the company it it drives the company culture of that. And I think revenue people are rewarded greatly because there's high risk. I mean, you're kind of as good as your last month, but at the end of the day, your ops team, like that, that's a different culture. And then I found it fascinating because I was a little bit initially a lot like my previous people that I worked for and owners, operators, etc., And I worked for corporate. I worked for Time Warner. I've, I've done the corporate thing. Mm-hmm. I've done the more family independent, wealthy thing. And then just the independent thing, startup thing. And I find that the, you know, uh, I used to be, you know, coming at 830. I don't want to see people watching the clock at five. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, if you're not going to show up Saturday, don't bother coming in Sunday. Right, but I don't expect right. people to work as hard as I do to Starting the second company, where it was a in t- for nine years, it was a virtual, and I'm like, okay, how do we engage the employees to work virtually and still mm-hmm. be motivated? And how do you keep so it, COVID? We we were like, whatever, COVID, whatever. This is we've, already, we've had this culture for eight years successfully. We you know, it's like, it's,
0: it's, so we're all home our, now. Okay. Yeah, Nothing but great. I mean,
1: I learned I picked this up actually from a fellow Don Walker who ran Magna. He just recently retired, a good friend of mine. Um, and it's one of Canada's largest companies, one of the largest auto parts, I think the largest auto parts manufacturer in the world. He had, I, I said, how do you manage 40,000 employees? Like, how do you do that? I, I couldn't, I can't even grasp <laughs> it. a know? different scale entirely. <laughs> yeah, he does, he retreats with Elon Musk and stuff. Like, I, like, I'm like, but at the end of the day, he had this whole profit sharing program in place, which I tried to duplicate. So our team, because we realized that the, you know, we, we've created a bit of a uh, a wonderful golden handshake in the sense that we give them the ability to live hours outside of the city. So the salaries are lower. Uh, the mm-hmm. cost of living is lower. A lot of our staff are actually mothers at home and give them mm-hmm. that quality of life that they're looking for and that independence. Oh. And we, to- we tie things to inflation, but at the same time, we profit share based on the company being profitable to the employees so they feel like they're it's like that southwestern airlines model right where all the owners right. but i mean they're not owners but they do share in company profits rewards so given our five less than five percent attrition and staff it it works yeah and i think we were a little bit ahead of the curve and I, i've got to really give my the profit sharing was my idea which i stole from don and magna but <laughs> But my partner wanted to be virtual. He wanted himself to be virtual. I'm the empl- only employee in a major city. And it worked. And we were just ahead of the curve in creating a culture that actually is very prevalent now today due to mm-hmm. COVID. And I think a lot of people, are, business owners are struggling with how to create that culture.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's
1: a new yeah. challenge that, that people are not used to.
0: I, th- I think it's true, and, and the expectations of the workforce has changed. So even if you're not ready for it, you're competing against other folks in the agency space who are remote native, and can offer that. So figuring yeah. that out is pretty important.
1: The other thing too is, and it was funny the way it, it happened. It happened. I'm going to say it would happen selfishly because I started the Canadian division for a U.S. company many years ago, and. I convinced Simon, he'll smack me when he, if he ever hears this, that, you know, we need the best benefit program. It really was just the best benefit program for me uh, (laughs) because I came from a good benefit program before that. So we set it up and Canada's got great benefits as it is. Oh, you know, we're a socialized company in that uh, country in that sense. But I set up a great benefit program. And what I realized was by having a better, by chance, by having a better benefit program than the larger companies than myself. Mm -hmm. I was able to attract and keep talent. Mm -hmm. So as a result, I've always kept my benefit programs very high Mm -hmm. for my staff, because that is one thing, even though I worked with a lot of millennials, some of them really didn't care, but now they, what they care is about mental health, they care about massage therapy, they care about those Mm -hmm. types of things. You know, and that's another way to help your retention and acquisition of new staff and, and quality people.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think having that, it's, it's a virtuous cycle, having that higher retention, because you can say to any candidate coming here, this may be the last place you need to work. Look at all these people. They're all lifers here. And they are, I mean, most of our employees are eight to
1: 10 years. And I mean, I, I, you know, the idea of working for a company longer than 10 years is just so foreign to, to people getting out of school. Now they're like, one-year hops, two-year hops.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I think and- you and I are of a different generation where it's, no, you got to have five years plus on the resume. Otherwise, it's not real.
1: <laughs> you're just like, otherwise I'm spending, you know, first six months training you and then you're hopping to somebody else. So exactly, you know, that's always the challenge you're going to have with, unfortunately, your high dr- revenue drivers like salespeople, but
0: yeah, yeah. So let me turn the direction a little bit to Q Digital and your exit there. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about what it looked like, the path to growth there, and then what it looked like at the time you exited. What the team looked like, how many years did that take, and how did your role evolve over time until up until the exit? Sure. You know,
1: we when I started from gestation when I started the company, I did it. I actually tested the waters, so to speak, in Australia. Uh, I was trying to convince my major, the company that I had launched, it was called Heavy.com at the time in Canada, and I was running their Canadian operations. And then by default, I took over their international operations because my friend left his role and I was traveling constantly out of Canada, living half in the UK. And and then when I decided to kind of wanted to start, I said, you know, I've done this enough for other people. I'd like to do it for myself. I tried, you know, I, I went to a previous employer, I think that's very important to tap into your, like, don't burn your bridges, keep in touch with, Mm -hmm. you know, I, so there's fellow, I, I, I have kind of a one year annual kind of get together with sometimes six months a year. Sometimes he calls me for advice, but most of the time, I'm just going in to say hi. And I said, listen, I'm going to start this company. I I, I actually, I, I approached him twice. One to say, you know, what's your number? How much money do you really need to make in life? Right. Mm-hmm. And I actually am very fortunate that I know like seven billionaires and several hundred millionaires. And pretty much everyone said 10 million is really all you need. You don't really <laughs> need, you don't need like anything above that. You're giving away money constantly. So, you know, unless you want, unless you want a jet and a helicopter and those type of things. Right. right, um, right. You know, that those are 10 million alone. Um, but at any rate, so trying to determine what it is that uh, so I I, I I petri dished Australia. I convinced. I went to Gary Slate. His name is billionaire now, on one of the largest broadcast radio industries in the Canadian marketplace, and uh, and he said, "Why don't you take your current company and offer him a piece of the action and launch with an existing revenue base?" And I so I approached my current employer and founder. And uh, he said, no, right now. And I said, listen, Australia, we're losing money. We might as well just either roll up shop, but I'm going to recommend them to do the same thing. So I called Mm -hmm. up my guy who's working for me in Australia. And I said, I got two options for you, man. I could fire you or help you start your own company. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, great, I'll start my own company. And I had all the systems in place for him. And I even had a supply for him, which I introduced him to, exclusive supply, and set him up in business. He sold the company four years later. In retrospect, I should have taken a percentage of that company, and I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Hindsight. In hindsight, I've got a lot of hindsight, by the way. We all do uh, in life. But try to look forward versus in the rearview mirror as much as you can. And I, it was successful for him. And then I convinced my owner to allow me to do it two years later. And I took him with me. And then that was really cool because he provided my cash flow because he did, I gave him a better deal with a cash flow opportunity. So I got I solved my cash flow and I actually didn't even go to the banks until 2 years later for credit
0: because mm-hmm. so my
1: CFO kept telling me like we're already a few million in revenue. We need a line of credit.
0: Right,
1: Just, you know. And that's a little bit of a we were in a bit of a cash out, cash in business. So mm-hmm. it's like we were paying the agencies in advance, or sorry, paying our supply partners, the publishers, in advance mm-hmm. of collecting from the agencies because the agencies are well known yeah. for slow paying. You know, I think that's a, a dire learning lesson as the whole just understanding cash flow.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, get paid. Get, yeah, it's hard, yeah.
1: and it's worse, and when things the economy isn't great.
0: Yeah, and it depends. I think on your client base. In my agency, I actually. From the beginning, we insisted on payment in advance by ACH. We did not do pay-o, we did not do bills. And if a client said, no, we won't do that, we said, okay, go find somebody else. Now that's a pretty hardcore way of doing it. And you it, it does constrain who you can work with. So in our industry, you could do that. If you want, if you go want to go and work for, you know, a $50 million or a $100 million company, they're going to be like, then go away. So it kind of depends. But for certain markets, I think that can work Really, that really solves a lot of your cash flow problems because you're getting the money even before you deliver. I agree, and I like. I'm dealing with a situation right
1: now. Obviously, I can't names. We protect the innocent, so to speak, but I'll I'll blur my face out. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) bright light in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I've got a client, and it's a you know a major company, major brand. In the grand scheme of things, they're not a big client to me, and I'm having. You know, they just won't sign off and this. We did some stuff in good faith and I've had to go, you know what? No, I'm not doing, I'm not doing any more work. I'm like, I'm just yeah. like, and, and I'm like, good luck. Go. There's only four other companies that do, does what we do. And I guarantee you, they're not going to pick up the way it is and they're going to be more expensive. Right. So, yeah, you do need to, you know, I've, I've also fired clients,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, where I, mean, I might lose a staff member over a client, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not saying I fired a client that's half my revenue, but I, I, but clients that are not as important. And, and I might change and staff up on who does what, but I, you know what? I think it's important to, under, you know, Gainer, Gary Vayner style. You got to fire people.
0: <laughs> it's like, yeah, exactly. And, and you're doing, and you're doing them a favor. I mean, you're doing the client a favor. You're doing anyone you fire, whether it's a client or whether it's a staff member, you're doing them a favor because they're going to find a better match somewhere else. Because clearly Absolutely. this match ain't working. <laughs> I mean that goes for staff too. Like I, I remember a yeah.
1: friend of mine. You said to me once, "There's a job for everybody. It may just not mm-hmm. be this job." Right.
0: It's exactly it. Exactly it. Uh, tell me a little bit about again with Q Digital, or tell me how the, the sale came about. So that sure. uh, was an acquisition. How did that? How did you get introduced to the acquirer? How did that process work?
1: You know, I probably had five offers for the company over a decade. Yeah. It. it And this gets into a little hindsight. You kind of go, you know, the first offer I was owning a couple of years in, and you know what? In in hindsight, it was it was actually a pretty good offer, but I was very uh, excuse the word
0: cocky, (laughs) bullish. You're bullish, (laughs) bullish
1: both, and uh, you know, which is a little cock and bull. (laughs) 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 But but I you know, um, and then. I Actually, it was interesting. The company that acquired the Australian company for four mil, they then approached me and I went to San Francisco and they wined and dined me. And I said, and I asked my typical 2000 question uh, back in the 2000s just before the dot-com bust. I asked, well, how do you make your... Re-? And I, I don't think I'm a stupid person. I don't know at all definitively, and I'm not, you know, deep in tech. But at the end of the day... I, I couldn't understand their business model and their revenue model and I went, you know what? This doesn't feel right. And so I walked away from the deal and 6 months later they had been uh, called out in Digiday about doing something shady and they uh, collapsed 6 months later like they collapsed. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have seen I would have seen like a small down payment and nothing else. So, you know, so uh, yeah. it, the it's cautionary tale like I think when you're selling a company you need to do a reverse due diligence of the company that's going to buy you now Mm -hmm. if it's fox or nbc probably not they're not going to open their kimono but if it's a you know company that you're not completely sure about even if they have 300 employees you just need to make sure that they're for real Mm -hmm. and what they're and where they are and they can afford to do the deal too because Mm -hmm. you know I, i wish i'd there was one hindsight offer that was more than what I eventually got uh, several years before, I wish I'd done that deal in hindsight. Mm-hmm. And I we did a reverse due diligence and we didn't see the money, but as it turns out, they had it. I met one of their investors later. And you know. so anyways, but so leading to the deal, I, I think that I always, I never put a shingle out saying the company's for sale mm-hmm. over the entire decade. I would occasionally, you know, entertain conversations with competitors. I'd have lunches, a yearly lunches with frenemies, so to speak, because of, often yeah. it's the frenemy that wants to acquire you, right? So never talk badly about your competition. Always take the high road, right? Never create a, I like to call it a Time mm-hmm. Newsweek war, or MTV VH1 war, because they did and they lost in, in, in those wars. Both parties lost. Try to, mm-hmm. you know, Take the high road with your competitors and meet them and conversation and always have those strategic conversations. And I think it's, it's, it, it happens also when you give back and take the calls and help people out. I, I think those things come around. So the company that eventually acquired me was one of my frenemies that I had yearly annual lunches with, you know, and, and we were kind of like just getting past COVID. Well, we know we we're in the throes of COVID and I'm, you know what? I think the writing is on the wall a little bit for this industry in general. There aren't many players left doing this and making money. And I'm thinking, I think it's bet, time to get out now rather than decline more. Like we had an all time high and we dipped a little bit. I, right or wrong, I kept all my staff on mm-hmm. during COVID, I could have saved myself a lot of money if I didn't.
0: Right. Quite honestly. That's the right
1: thing to do. Right. But I can sleep at night with that. So the timing was good. And this company, you know, this fellow, he's good at what he does. We've all, you know, we kind of laughed. We said, we probably should have done this three or four years ago or five years ago. Yeah. We would have become much larger. So I think the combination of the two has managed to increase his company in size as a result. He mm-hmm. took, Obviously an acquisition I can't control who he hires, but I'd mm-hmm. say he took four of my best
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know and everyone else did fine with you know severance etc. Mm-hmm. And the process it happened very quickly and I think that's the one thing about I learned I think when you're talking to an a, about an acquisition is deal heat. I think you yeah. need to recognize you know people's patience. And and interest because you know all of a sudden that shiny new car isn't quite as shiny sixty days later,
0: right? So right,
1: and they're like you know, uh, am I going to be as interested? Uh, you know, if this is a challenge now, this is going to be a challenge when I try to merge. Mm-hmm. And and typically you're held on for a year or two to to help yep. with that. And if you're difficult.
0: Now, wow. Oh my God, later. You can only imagine when there's no incentive.
1: (laughs) Exactly. There's a a guy named uh, Miles Nadell. Now he's not a shining example of a person to follow from a business perspective, but because he's got himself a little bit of hot water with taxes. But he approached me and he had a model of acquiring agencies and he would take 51% control. But let the agency person continue to take dividends, et cetera, et cetera. And I know one person who did very well by doing a deal. So when he his team approached me and I met with a CFO, he started listing all these different things about MA. And I'm like, wait, let me write it down. He goes, No, no, you don't need to write it down. I promise you. I'm gonna give you something later that has all this listed. <laughs> and, you know. And so he gives me a t shirt at the end of the meeting and it it lists all these MA points.
0: That that's funny. funny. Okay.
1: Yeah, and I don't disagree with them. And one of them, them, I just remember one of them, especially since I'm here at my cottage, said, I have to spend three days with you at a cottage (laughs) before I acquire your business. (laughs) I like that one. I I like it too. You know, I I have the t-shirt somewhere. I have to pull up. There was like, I think, seven things to an M&A deal that he believes is his ethos. Anyway. I
0: love that. One interesting thing that strikes me about that, I mean, you've mentioned this a couple times in our conversation, is you take a lot of meetings and you stay in touch with a lot of people, even if it's just once a year, having the yeah. meetings with frenemies. It sounds, you know, that led to your exit. In addition, it also has led to huge opportunity. I, I just think that there's so many agency owners who have their blinders on and they're knee deep in operations and sales and they're not talking to the wider industry in that way. And I. I think I was certainly that way for the first probably three years where it was just so hard. So I think that is a really important lesson for anyone. Well, you're tired.
1: You're, you're an entrepreneur. You're tired, but it's important. You know, the networking mm-hmm. thing, there was a, you know, I'm, my memory is strong enough from a decade ago that I can actually give references where references are, are uh, due. So I remember I worked with this guy named Paul McCabe in radio back in the 90s and uh, Paul left and started a sales training company and he did a huge course on referral selling Mm -hmm. and I drank the Kool-Aid big time and I made it almost a life mission. So it's not just about business, Mm -hmm. personal, you know, I met my fiance through a friend I don't think, you know, I got this cottage through a friend. I haven't, Mm -hmm. every single job I've, I have been connected through somebody. I know every single apartment I lived in as a rental was through a friend. Like Mm -hmm. everything I've ever done has through referral and 95% of my business to my current company is referral. Mm. And I'm leaning into that. I'm like striking up all these referral agreements and, and relationships. So it's all about your relationships, your referrals your credit worthiness in business, your reputation. These are all things that are extremely important, I think, when you're looking mm-hmm. at your business career, whether you're working for somebody or running your own business. And, and, you know, I won't remember who said this to me, but if you don't show up, nothing happens. Yeah. You know, the networking helping ends up in receiving networking it's, is it's
0: important because yeah, networking is it's your relationships are assets and it's assets. That, it's the ultimate asset that is portable. Even when you sell the company, you still have them. So it's a lifetime yep. asset, which I think is a fantastic way And you know, I've been very guilty of not doing that for portions of my career while I've been heads down and I've always regretted it.
1: I could even tap in further. I've got a silly LinkedIn account where, you know, I, I never block I don't accept every request because some of them are very erroneous, but I don't tap into that as much as I should, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. I am more now, I mean, the digital day camp, one of the things I just started recently, I held a conference in Toronto and I part, and again, key factor is finding the right partner. I was looking at the, the concept. I realized that there was a gap in the Canadian marketplace. That's what, You know, if I see a problem, if I go, that's a problem immediately. I'm like, how do you solve it? Because whatever that solution is, it's a business opportunity. Yep. That's an entrepreneurial money. ADD. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, you know, you asked me how many, how can I start different ventures? One, it's a work ethic as well, because you know, that the, I think today's live work and I probably work too much, mm. but I can literally be on a conference call at the cottage audio only and be doing gardening at the same time.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I
1: get my kind of mix, at least up here. You know, I do miss having an office though. That's a, I really miss that human interaction on a daily basis.
0: Yeah. I, I I sometimes miss that too. Uh, but it's, I dunno, I wouldn't trade it for full time for anything. Maybe it's like summer and winter, right? Like to do a season there.
1: Yeah, I mean I had a very unique scenario where I have a loft in the city in a commercial building. It's a you know, eighteen hundreds building, about thirty foot ceilings, it's very unique. And my office was next I, I actually built all my businesses in this building. So my I had like my commute to work was literally one minute and then I took an office next door and my commute to work was one stairwell. And so <laughs> I, I you know <laughs> That's the best commute ever. I thought I had good. You know, what's interesting is actually the guy that acquired my business, Kevin Bardis. very smart, very smart guy with a very smart, like just smart runs in his family. His wife is close to winning a Nobel Prize medically. And anyway, he he ended up buying a condominium downtown and converting it to live work. And so he uses that condo for an office and people drop in three to five days a week, whatever, Mm -hmm. Uh, not even like I'd say no one's in there more than once or twice a week. He's probably in there two or three days, but he has a, he has, you know, a cumulative asset to the company now Mm -hmm. down to we're looking 40% drop in commercial real estate. What's going to happen? that I don't don't think that's happened changing anytime soon. So I think as a business owner, I, if I, you know, if I needed my team to be in a physical space, I'd buy a live work condominium that will accrue as an asset versus paying rent.
0: Yeah. There's no point in, in paying the rent. And I, I'm in San Francisco where it's a complete wasteland in right now in the, I think in the, office market.
1: Have, I think the yeah. office market needs to convert
0: to living. Yeah. 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 That w- Which actually brings it. I I want to bring something up from our first conversation because this is actually related to it. Because we're talking about the future of these firms and like how does an agency decide where to place their bets and you know whether or not you have an office, where you have your office, do you buy the office? These are all strategic decisions. I think there's one really interesting thing that I actually have not had a conversation about with any of the other guests so far that you brought up was that space is changing. And you said something really interesting, which was we shoot ourselves in the foot every few years, programmatic, cookie list, GDPR, and the market is changing so rapidly. So if somebody's listening right now and they own an agency and we're in this time here, you know, mid 2023, where things are changing so quickly, what do they have to be watching for in the next 18 months, 24 months, 36 months that they're going to have to go through? either during the time they're trying to get sold or before they get sold and they have to prepare the business for it. So I'd love your take on that because you're so deeply entrenched in the kind of the future of marketing and and technology related to that. Yes. It's
1: interesting. I mean, I think the agency world right now, I think acquisitions right now are challenging, so you really, one, you always need, if you want to sell your company, it could take up to five years. So always be thinking that far forward. I think having I mean, there's a bunch of these kind of companies that are aggregating various agencies, like a creative agency versus a buying agency versus a you know strategy agency versus an influencer agency, and aggregating various specialties into one hub that in the hopes that either goes public or sells. I think there are certain areas that are under service that as an agency you need to look at and say, what's my specialty, you know, whether it's creative or otherwise. I also think certain agencies based on the size. I mean, there's a Paul Lavoie known fellow who started an agency called Taxi, a friend of mine, and you know, he created Taxi, but he had the belief that once you hit a hundred people, you start losing the essence and the culture. So he created Taxi 2 and just branched off. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So he's the only person worrying about the two companies and maybe the CFO versus the internal culture. And it was a very successful, and he had an incredibly successful exit as a result. Mm -hmm. Went down to New York, like just like great exit. You know, Zula Alpha Kilo, another company that, that, you know, I think a lot of these companies start with a, Kind of that core wonder team of creative directors, etc., and ideas men, madmen, almost to create a unique culture that the client buys into. But yeah. I think specialty is important. I think, for example, the influencer space, which I, you know, I got, I'm involved in, is a very underrepresented category, and mm-hmm. most of the agencies have ignored this. Yep. As a growth area for themselves, they basically handed it to the PR agencies on a silver platter. Most of them are being still running what I would call rosters
0: mm-hmm.
1: versus using technology. You don't you buy every single piece of media out there, but you don't use technology to do so or or, yeah. or data. You know, so I got you know talking about. You know one of the opportunities that i took advantage of was uh an old friend of mine this guy named dave dickman i met in hong kong and we worked together for a couple of years but been best friends forever we were chatting and he said you know and i actually he moved to the us and then i represented warner because he was working he was the evp or at warner and then he moved to disney but they had their own sales channel and then he went independent and went to a startup influencer technology company called Tagger and mm-hmm. I and we're just you know just catching up and he's oh shoot by the way I go what, you know what are you doing he goes oh I started this company called Tagger I go dude I've been looking for an influ- influencer solution for the last 6 months <laughs> and so I said let A Silver Bullet solve my problem I went from a $250,000 business in that revenue area to seven figures in six months. Plus I'm going, wait, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I love this technology so much. I want to sell it. So then I started selling the technology and I sold it to group M and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But I, but it was funny because I'm talking to agencies and they're going like, it it is, they're like, we're not doing any influencer revenue. That's because you don't have an engine in the car. Right. It's cart horse.
0: Yeah, you know, you're treating then, you're treating it like old school media buys. Yeah, and so the current CEO
1: of Kevin Johnson of Group M, he was a, he at the time when I sold him the technology, he was the CEO of MediaCom, and my buddy Stuart Garvey was the CEO of Group M, and they both signed off on putting it in the MediaCom, and they had one person who really understood the influencer business and realized that they're just you know they really needed something. In there. Mm -hmm. Group M had its own solution, but it wasn't, you know, sometimes building your own tech is not the way to go.
0: Not if you're Um, not a tech
1: company, no. (laughs) That's a big learning, by the way, to Mm. to definitely recognize that. And anyway, MediaCom and and KJ, Kevin Johnson is now the CEO of Group M in Canada. And MediaCom is responsible for 80% of all Group M's influencer revenue. So I would talk to agencies, going, "You should bring this in house," and they're all like, oh, "Card horse." So a lot of agencies just don't get it. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Like programmatic, the brands are going to bring it in house. Brands are yeah. bringing stuff in house. They're starting their own media companies. Like they're basically becoming competitors to agencies, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing that the agency world needs to realize and work around. And, and you get tired of a you know a twenty year old media buyer making very little money buying stuff because it's just easier to buy.
0: There's not a lot of value add in a lot of that. And then the market changes so quickly with each new platform that get gets introduced. Um, yeah. what, what are you seeing in terms of, you know, AI is all the rage, right? It's gone from pretty much nothing to yeah. everyone's talking about it in the last six months. Where do you see that going in the disruption of creative? You know, so...
1: I'm the first person who's willing to push a rock up the hill. Okay. <laughs> but I'm also the first person who's wary of the shiny new toy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because clients get all excited. There's a lot of media press around things. And then all of a sudden it, it, we, we create our own tulip bu- bubble market on certain things. Yep. Right. Remember when VR was all the rage? Oh Oh, my God. Everything's going to be VR. Everything VR, 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 VR. And they're like, okay.
0: I remember QR QR codes. That was also the rage. How long ago?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, so what, you know, what's the easy lift? Now, can chat GBT and these various AI initiatives solve? Like, I think we're in a, we're now in an economy where how do we cut costs? If AI can help you cut costs, then it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to work. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Programmatic was the death of the CPM for a while. Mm -hmm. And then they realized, well, when I retire, fully retire, and I don't really care what anybody thinks, I'm going to write a book on, you know, the whole advertising, you know, just the market and what happened during the growth of programmatic. But uh, <laughs> it, it, do I hear
0: words like fraud? No, I won't put words in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I said that. You didn't say it. I said it. Yeah, I'm not naming names. Again, it's like that black <laughs> face. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> exactly. Tw- twice now, twice now, I've made you go incognito. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that, I mean, it, Listen,
1: I'll just compare it to 2000 when there was the bubble, right? You got the Internet shoots itself in the foot every decade, but the Internet moves so fast. It's actually shortening, right, Mm -hmm. in in time frame. Programmatic was a great solution to find efficiencies. But whenever a trillion dollars moves from one area to another area, you're going to get fraud. You're going to get, you know, you know, people trying to go public and raise money and this and that. And there's no actual, you know, meat to the company. So how many AI companies, because of the attention that it's getting right now, are going to be just BS versus what's real? So I think, you know, and, and unfortunately, it's a generation later, you know, we're in 2023. People in 2000 are kind of, you know, retiring, and so no one, you know, so does anybody remember that? Does anybody remember, you know, that the, 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 you know, the tulip market I was talking about. So I think AI, I think there's value to it a thousand percent, but I think be really careful about the type of companies that you're looking at, the type of technology you're looking at. Is it real? Do some do due diligence, mm-hmm. you know, on, on what the solution can be and how it'll apply it's like putting an ERP into a company that's less than $10 million is just a complete waste of money. You know, just, you know, look into that. I think there's something there. Have I, am I an expert in the area? No. I've got a million shiny new toys that I'm already trying to figure out. There's just so much going on in ad tech that this is just one more thing. It's interesting, though. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I'm going to pay more attention to it, but I want to, I'm not,
0: I don't personally, I'm too old to push that stone up the hill right now. Yeah, I I agree with you. But like at a high level, I think that agencies need to be aware that is the discussion that is happening everywhere. And you have to have a cogent response to what about AI? How do you use AI? How do you think about it? Because the clients are thinking it already. And some of the clients are thinking, I'm just going to pull a bunch of the stuff in-house. So if you don't have a position on it, that's the hardest that's the weakest way to be versus oh, having a, a position percent. a philosophy
1: do your research and i mean i think that's you know uh, i did this conference i'm organizing some small thought leadership dinners of eight 12 individuals from that are, are c level individuals to have these type of discussions and say all right let's have a, let, let's just put 12 of us in a room and let's have a conversation around ai right mm-hmm. what's working what's not working let's learn from each other because you know you were saying earlier about you know living in your own forest and i, and I think that's as an entrepreneur that's a challenge sometimes because you mm-hmm. don't have the leadership around you and i was talking to brad Hugo, who used to be the president of magna on the investment arm for ipg and he was saying you know individuals are expected at a senior level to know everything, mm-hmm. and we don't. We know a little. You know, sometimes we know enough just to be dangerous. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, how much you know? How much time do you need to spend? I mean, I think you know. The, for two years, we weren't going to conferences, so we weren't learning that mm-hmm. way. The mm-hmm. co- entire conference model has changed. You know, it's gone. It's steered way more towards breakout sessions, more into master class scenarios.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And self-education is just so important. And I think that's another thing. I I think C-level individuals and founders and entrepreneurs, they fall into a little bit of a know-it-all scenario, and they're not educating themselves quite enough. So they need to go to an AI conference. They need to go to an influencer technology conference. They need to understand what has happened in this market and are there opportunities that I'm missing out in as a company?
0: Yeah. Or follow kind of your example, which is, you know, you take a lot of meetings, find the three or four smartest people that you know, who know more about this and go talk to them and say, who do you know? And daisy chain your way towards a working knowledge from practitioners and not from just media because it's easy to just go on YouTube and watch a bunch of videos, but that doesn't give you context about how it's really being used in the real world.
1: It's how I learned to clean a fish at the cottage about seven years ago, though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It has its place. It's okay. I got a plumbing challenge. How do I do that? (laughs) That's great. David, any kind of final thoughts that you want to give to somebody maybe give to the younger you, right? So you've had a a varied career, a lot of entrepreneurial endeavors. You know, if you're talking to you of 25 years ago, what advice would you give to wrap this up today?
1: Businesses, like you're sitting at a Vegas gambling table, take money off the table. (laughs) Just remember to do that. You know what? You know, have some assets. If you can have a real estate asset as your company, I know a good friend of mine, Rod Bell, Started an ad agency and bought his building, and now all he does is real estate. He makes money, Mm -hmm. as he says, I make money while I sleep, and that makes me happy. So consider, you know, that's, I guess, it becomes that Rembrandt, famous Rembrandt in the attic. Mm -hmm. What other values does your business have? Choose your partners carefully, you know, Mm -hmm. looking at the middle, you know, go to the cottage, you know, spend three, four days. Is this person, you don't need to be best friends, but they're, you need to have a relationship. And you need to, and then I, I'd say company culture is very important. And I messed that up along the way. I, I think I was true draconian, based on past experience and past environments I worked in. I think culture changed. I think recognize the culture of your employees because often you're not the same. I hate to say I'm a baby boomer because it's only two years I'm separated from a generation, (laughs) but I'm a baby boomer. But obviously, you know, you've got all all these, you know, you've got a whole new generation that you need to take a look at what's going on in their culture. You know, I, 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 to be more attuned to that, I think the human organizational skills are going to be the thing of the future and, and understanding how to, you know, pay attention to that mental health, you know, live, work, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That's become much more prevalent, you know, and then considering exits, I I think that don't be, you know, take, really take a good look at, because, you know, when you do an exit, you could get an offer that could be better today versus tomorrow, that's cash in the bank that could give you opportunities to do something else. That'll determine on, your age and what you want to do with life, knowing your number, knowing, you know, knowing what your exit number could be. Like, I I think, did I, in hindsight, miss some opportunities? Absolutely. I think that, I think I, I could have, you know, and it's a Gary Vayner thing. Like I could have fired sooner. Some people, I think I, I held on to people maybe too long. That wasn't, Mm -hmm. it didn't do me a service or them a service, quite honestly. And Mm -hmm. it creates some toxic toxicity in the environment. And I think that choosing your partners is crucial. I, you know, if you take a look at the things that I do, I I would always say, don't be a jack of too many trades. I appear like I am, but I manage that by having the right partners to do things. And I also, I don't have enough. I hopefully try not to have the ego to hold a bone like a dog would in the sense of you need to let things go and move on. And, and, and if you have to cut your losses at times, you know, there's been situations Mm -hmm. where I've had to cut my losses on situ, you know, situations that, you know, focus on profitability. I think I wish I'd taken an accounting course, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) you know, I do. I I, I really, you know, that's a bit of a black hole to me. Mm. I think that's, I think that's important, you know, and I think, I, I'm very happy about the decisions I made, for the most part in life. I think you create your own opportunities and you create your own luck. You do, mm-hmm. yeah. You, know, you really, you.
0: No one else is the master of your
1: destiny. You are.
0: That's great. That's great. And you know, you're sitting in your slice of heaven in your cabin, so something's worked out well with those principles. So, David, oh, I'm uh, going to make I'm going to make all my viewers jealous.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> your, your viewers. Yeah.
0: you're going to, you're going to show the water. There you go. That's there it is. Yeah. And my puppy, my, and by the way,
1: if you can work virtual, you know, this is courtesy of Elon. I just haven't got a
0: permanent home for my Starlink yet. I just put it in. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Great. David, thank you very much. I think we've learned a lot about how you approach things with your you know, perspective on partnerships and spinning out businesses and maintaining relationships. I'm sure people will get a ton of this. So thank you very much for joining today.
1: Much appreciated. Thank you for the opportunity.